Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. And my guest today is definitely someone you want on your team because he joins companies who are underperforming and then gets them to scale their revenues. So this is the kind of guy you want to be working with. And he's currently the Vice President of Operations and Administration at Fairmob USA. And he's also passionate about working with horses, specifically show jumping. So um, uh, without further ado, so meet Scott. Uh, Scott uh, Walker-Reyes. So welcome to the show, Scott. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Proud to be here. Oh, uh, great to have you. So, you know, we are in post-COVID world and inflation and transportation, costs going up. Everybody's talking about supply chain problems. And you've got a methodology to deal with. Right. So uh, so tell us what that is. Well, the methodology is, you know, you've got to take the high road. So um, at this point in time, just in time inventory just doesn't work any longer. So finding a way to spread your inventory sources around. So getting other partners involved, other vendors involved, maybe even other countries involved to source inventory from um, in order to make sure that you can get it in some way, um, either you know West Coast or East Coast, and get it into the country and get it to you. So uh, what I'm hearing is create alternative suppliers or uh, even supplying countries, right? That's correct. That's so how do you go about doing that? And what what is your? Do you have uh, like the agents that you work with, or you just are searching all the time? Well, I think that, um, you know, we're in furniture and I've done a variety of other um, types of products too. Um, and generally the products that I've worked with are niche markets. And so it's a very small world. Um, you know, when tariffs hit China, um, Indonesia and Taiwan and a few other places were quick, quick, quick to gear up with molds for different types of products. So um, there are alternatives all around. You just have to kind of look for them. So, you know, it's... Um, it's not difficult as long as you just put your ear to the ground. Do you, uh, when you start your, so let's say that you are looking to create an alternative. First of all, is it just one or do you usually go after multiple? Well, it could be multiples, um, you know, depending on what products you have. Um, if you're relying on some type of a raw material that requires contracts over the year, maybe it's copper or steel or aluminum. Um, you really have to currently hedge your bets because you may not be able to get that raw material, even if it ends up being available. Um, and then if you can get it, it's going to be late. And then manufacturing is going to be late. And then ocean freight is going to be late. And before you know it, um, it's the next season. Yeah. So, um, so really, there are so many things that you have to take into consideration. So, uh, so when you start your search to find an alternative, are you starting in this country with different associations or are you going to the source country and then do your search there? Um, that's interesting that you say that because there are a number of ambassadors types from a variety of countries that are here in the United States that their sole job is to work with businesses to try and foster business relationships with their country. Um, and so they actually provide a lot of legwork and a lot of research for you for free, just trying to get you to collaborate with some type of a business owner or factory or product vendor, something in their home country. So, uh, and I, you know, when it's free, you get what you pay for. So how do they benefit from this? Are they like government organizations? Yes, they're employees of their government, basically. I see. Okay. So they are here. And this is pretty much, so can you give us some examples of some countries that have that? Sure. Um, actually, we just used um, one from France a few weeks ago. 
looking for someone that can manufacture cushions. Um, and actually, he had um, contacts here in the United States that we were able to utilize. So came up with six different vendors over the course of a week for us to talk with and um, actually found a vendor that we're very, very comfortable with. Wow, that's... Uh... And you buy from friends and competitively? No, well, not necessarily, but you know that's where our corporate office is. the The brand is from France, and so um, we're continually here in the states being approached by um, people from France, um, ambassadors from France, uh, in order to um, continue and foster that relationship. They 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 feel like it's an easy in, and it generally is. Yeah. Okay. So. Can you share with us some creative ways for you to do your research, uh, to identify, uh, you know, alternative suppliers that you want to work with? Sure. So you might have a product that requires um, a, a mixture of materials. It could be steel plus aluminum plus a fabric, or it could be a plush toy that needs sewing and fabric and stuffing and, and um, you know, buttons and those kinds of things. And so what you're looking for is a manufacturer that can at least manufacture one of those pieces. And generally, if they can manufacture one of those pieces they already have in their back pocket manufacturers of the other pieces. And then it's just a matter of finding a way for them to assemble if you can assemble. Now, we all know that the made in the USA thing is, you know, as long as it is substantially altered by the time it, it's done here in the United States, then it could be a made in America type product. Um, generally, that's very difficult to do when you're talking about, you know, plush toys or furniture or a variety of those kinds of things. But um that's generally what I would do is look for manufacturers that manufacture at least one piece of the product that you have um, and start there. I see. Okay. And uh, what do you find as far as your, everybody who is working with China, but outside China, uh, can you share with us some of the alternative suppliers you have in alternate countries? Yes, absolutely. So, um, it may or may not surprise people, but India is a huge source for metalwork and for sewing work. Um, Mexico is a great source for sewing work um, and certain types of um, artisanal crafts. Um, at one time, I worked for an organization that did kitchen and bathroom products, and every, every custom-made and stock-itemed copper sink we actually got from Mexico, and the quality and craftsmanship was incredible. I see. Okay. Well, that's um, that's useful. I mean, Mexico obviously is the mm -hmm. favorite because it's close. You don't have the transportation. <laughs> At least the transit time, right? So that's the obvious. Yeah. Uh, so tell us now, working backwards, so how do you do your calculations of what to order from whom? Is it uh, same item from multiple suppliers, different quantities, or is it different products from different suppliers? What well, I would tell you that um, a few years ago, we could tell you, you know, how are you going to source and what are you going to source? And then, you know, since COVID started and e-commerce and direct-to-consumer sales are just incredible with the growth um, and the constant demand, which is still there, um, you know, any type of modeling that you want to do is going to be garbage by next week. So, um, you know, really concentrating, especially if you have a need for raw materials, really hedging your bets and taking contracts that are over and above what you normally would use. Um, you know, if you find yourself in a position where you don't need it, at least you have it on hand and you can use it for the next year. Um, but getting caught without your raw materials doesn't give you any product to sell. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is two things. First of all, doesn't matter what you plan. It comes down to the raw materials. Whoever secured it, that's what matters. Mm -hmm. And the second thing, it reminds me of the, uh, the movie by Larry David. It's a Woody Allen movie called Whatever Works, right? <laughs> yes. Well, so. and, you know, um, it's been interesting during COVID because not only did direct-to-consumer sales skyrocket. I mean, almost immediately with, you know, we had a 60% increase um, right off the bat. But not only that, but with all of the workers at home, 
tons and tons of corporations took that opportunity since the buildings were empty to rehab and refurbish. And so even the contract market was, was gangbusters. Also, the offices were actually refurbished. Yes. But there's nobody to go back to the office now. Well, they thought they were going to go back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes. So this is, yeah. you're talking about the early days. Yeah. All of 2001. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I remember. Yeah. Because it was, it started in March. I remember very well, like most people, I was actually on a, uh, in the airport in Minnesota uh, from Minneapolis coming back to New York, March 13th and uh, Friday. And, and then that's when everything locked down. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember a press conference, well, it will shoot me over by April. Yes. That's what so, we thought, right? Yeah, and we're still here, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, you know, and who knows? Maybe it's just something that we'll just get used to and it'll go away like most of the other diseases that we've had over the hundreds of years we've been around. Well, everybody has flu and nobody even blinks when they have flu. So yeah. that, I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, so, so tell me that. So you're telling me you hit a spike as much as 60% when the lockdown occurred. So the, does the increase continue to this day or was that the spike and went away no the increase is the increase is still today it's not to that magnitude but we're still dealing with the the backlog of product um from when it was gangbusters so i'll give you a, for instance um we use a certain type of material for outdoor cushions and the lead time on that fabric right now is 62 weeks over 62 a year. 62 weeks? Yes, over a year. Oh, my gosh. How do you know what to order that's going to well, be? Well, <laughs> you know, another situation where we've had to source a different supplier, um, yeah. you know, and it's a, a different type of product. It doesn't match exactly, but, you know, you have to do what you have to do. Okay. Well, I mean, you're talking about something that nobody really talks about, uh, which is really the sourcing aspect of it. You know, we all hear about supply chain, but... When it comes right down to it, how do you deal with it on the ground? So, yeah. you, you, so it's constant juggling. Like. And consumers, um, I think, at first they didn't understand, and then they they got it um, when they would go to the grocery store and things wouldn't be there that they wanted. Um, so they understood pretty early on that there were going to be delays in shipping. What they didn't put together was not only are there delays in shipping to get them their product, but that delay goes all the way back from the source of the first piece of product that you need to build whatever it is that they're going to buy. And it just rolls downhill from there. Okay. So now we have the inflation aspect of it. And as we're recording this, it's uh, June of 2022. So we've got this whole inflation situation. So if you ordered something and it has a long you know, lead time before it's available, yeah. How do you negotiate your pricing? We don't go back to the customer and change their pricing. And how about the vendor? If we already have a confirmed order in with the vendor, it doesn't get changed either. Um, it does change moving forward. And so, you know, in the past, we've only done one price change per year. Um, in the last year, I think we've done three, which we've never done before. So... Do you get your suppliers asking you for an increase because of the recent situations or not? Um, so far, not really. Um, I actually think that like us, where we're trying to be as gracious as we can to the consumer, they're doing the same thing with who they do business with. And by the time you put it all together and you add it all up, it's only then that you realize how much of a change there's been in cost. Yeah. And then only on the repeat orders, I guess they bring right. that, right? Right. So really, it's we are hearing about the inflation and we see the prices going up, but only on things that are consumed fairly fast. like right. food and, and, I, and I would tell you the biggest cause of increases in pricing is ocean freight. 
And so, you know, at this point in time, the administration is looking into three of the bigger carriers um, regarding price gouging. But when you look at the levels of goods that they're transferring and trading, it, it, it doesn't make sense for your rates to have gone up four and 500%. You know, it used to be that you could get a container out of China for between four and $5,000 landed in the United States. Um, last year, at one point, containers were up to 26,000. Wow. If you could even get it loaded onto a, onto a, onto a ship. Yeah, I mean, it makes no sense that these things happen. The other thing is you have the labor shortage, right? Because people, you know, at the very least, you have people who got sick. Yes. And uh, just in this country alone, over a million people died. I mean, so uh, the, the labor force is bleeding. And on top of that, you have the new habits developing. Yeah, like uh, I read somewhere that one company, oh, uh, yes, this was in a Facebook group. Uh, somebody was hiring for a position and in the interview was very well for a senior position. And when he said 100% remote, the, the candidate said, I, in that case, not interested. Wow. So the company decided to go 100% remote. And this, this particular situation the candidate they did not want that so you have habits changing and of course in transportation you can't do remote you can't do the office part but sure so, uh, yeah i mean so what what i'm really hearing from you is this the this inflation has not really taken hold yet with price no. increases there is bigger piece is coming down the road because when the repeat orders kick in and the demand is there, then people are going to find the prices going up further. Yeah. And, you know, with the inflation, um, you know, the ocean freight has been up. Um, gasoline prices in the U.S. are up. The interesting thing is that people have all of this extra money to spend because of housing sales and where the real estate market is. And oddly enough, you know, a year ago, you'd be paying 30 and 40 percent more for your building materials if you were going to go into construction on a home. Um, but building materials have come down back to almost where they used to be. So um, I don't know if that's a product of the supply and demand or if the organizations now are just able to supply more. Um, but it, that's very interesting when I look at that in terms of inflation. You know, And we had a lot, um, I think everywhere in the United States had a lot of the smaller restaurants that went out of business the one thing that I don't think people realize is that unless you have margin on goods, um, there were a ton of people that may be sourced out of China or Vietnam or Indonesia where, you know, their containers were sitting there and it would take six months after the container was ready to get it onto a ship. And by the time it could come, the pricing had gotten so big that these um, wholesalers and distributors they couldn't afford because of the margin on their goods to pay the ocean freight to get it here. So they just left their goods behind and went out of business. And those goods were paid for or? Well, the, the goods were paid for, but the ocean freight was not. And so, you know, when they're looking at a 40 foot high cube container and you're looking at, you know, maybe sundry items that might have a, you know, they're a $5 item with a maybe a hundred percent margin and you've got a $26,000 container, you don't have enough margin in that container to pay for the ocean freight to get it here. In order to make any money, you're better off to leave it and not do anything with it. So this reminds me of uh, a situation I had from many, many years ago. I used to actually be in transportation business. I had a transportation company and uh, we would have sometimes the consignments that would come over and they would be prepaid so they would arrive and the importer would simply not clear it, just leave it. Yes. Uh, it would be either because it's late or some dispute. And so, so now the exporter doesn't care because they are already paid for. Right. Now the importer, they cut their losses, they're walking away. And so who owns the goods? You know who owns the goods? 
probably the shipping company. Well, Core, I mean, I don't know how it is now, but uh, we would be, it would happen to me all the time. So uh, all the time being like fairly frequently, uh, I would just, by law, you're supposed to give a notice mm-hmm. and you say you come collected. And by the way, until then, you are incurring a storage rate. And then, you know, you basically have the right to confiscate as the transportation. However, the tricky part is if the merchandise is not cleared through customs, then that's it. You, you can't touch it because now you, who's going to clear it and you need paperwork. You need that's when you it. hope it just falls off the ship, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, in this case, they are not even shipped yet. So it's a, yeah. an interesting situation. So don't prepay anything. No, <laughs> <that's good> advice. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. no. So, and that's, you know, that brings up an, another point is that, um, you know, with the advent of waiting so long for ocean freight and space being so tight and even paying um, basically for priority status, you couldn't get on a ship. Um, It's my um, edict that I never want more than two or three containers on the same ship. And you couldn't do that anymore. I mean, there was one ship that I had 11 containers on. And you can imagine if something happened to that ship and all 11 containers were at the bottom of the ocean, what that would do. But you don't have a choice. Yeah. So, I mean, negotiating the contracts and uh, getting the logistics of what's shipping when, it's uh, it's very hard. So, hopefully, this will clear up. But uh, as we kind of come out of this COVID era, things get easier. But it looks like it's going to be here for a while. So let's take a step back and talk about uh, the Amazon operation. So uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, take on Amazon as a marketplace. What is the opportunity on Amazon for someone who is considering it but not yet done anything about it? Right. So it's interesting where Amazon started and where Amazon is today. You know, or even where eBay was and where it is today. You know, you used to go to eBay for a deal. You don't go to eBay for a deal anymore. Um, and Amazon was the same way. You know, they it was the one place you could go and they had a wide variety of product and you could get things that normally you couldn't get anywhere else around you. Um, and you could get it relatively quickly. And then you could get it real quick. You know, sometimes you'd order something and it would be, you know, next to your door by morning time. Um, and And that's the part that has made any type of wholesale distribution very difficult because Amazon has created an expectation where a consumer expects that I ordered it today, I should have it tomorrow. And that is just not necessarily the case, especially when you're talking about large items like furniture. Um, You can't just stick it out for the small package carrier to pick it up because it isn't going to work. And then Amazon's customers also have taken on the idea that they can basically um, utilize Amazon as a dressing room, basically, you know, they can order something, they can get it so they can look at it and say, oh, no, that's not really what I wanted and send it right back. Um, And there are products that you just can't do that with. Furniture is one of them. It doesn't travel well twice. Um, And so for us, you know, that's the big one is um, ensuring that if we're going to ship furniture to someone that they understand um, what they're getting and that the return policy is something different than they're used to. Um, Our return policy is that you as the consumer are gonna pay your return freight. And once the product is returned, as long as it is in original condition and sellable, then we will refund you. If it's not, then we'll discuss some type of a discounted arrangement. Um, And that is a really hard pill for a lot of people to swallow because they don't expect that. Um, So does that mean you do your own fulfillment? You're not prime? No, we do our own fulfillment because we can't ensure that our product's going to arrive safely. Um, We are very sustainable in terms of packaging. So there's a lot of air in our packaging. There's no, you know, styrofoams or foams or any of that sort of thing. And so um, we tend to ship most of it ourselves. We're looking at a model where a portion of our product would be um, Amazon fulfilled. Um, and that's probably where we'll go to as soon as we can ensure that the supply chain is there to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that means if you're doing prime 
Amazon will not have the same kind of return policy. They'll right. just fund the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm wondering, I want in this case where the product is furniture and it's a fairly big one, ordinarily you would have a return fee. Uh, who eats the cost of that return item, I wonder, in the case of Amazon? In the terms of Amazon, the sellers are going to eat the cost. Yeah. Unfortunately. I can see that. And your hope is, is that you can have enough volume to make up that um, just as a cost of doing business. And in your case, it's more troubling because usually what happens is when you have return item, they ask you, you know, this is not saleable. What do you want us to do with it? And then you can create a removal order and bring them back. But in your case, it's even worse that way because now it was shipped to Amazon, then shipped from Amazon to the customer, then shipped back, and now it's the fourth time it's going to get shipped. It's certainly not going to be usable by the time the fourth trip. Yeah, so that means you're going to have to ask them to destroy it. That's the total, you know, eating the cost. Mm-hmm. So um, prime being in the prime channel as a furniture seller, you are saying, think very carefully. Yeah. And, you know, I think anybody that's in the prime sector at this point, the carriers are so overburdened um, that they're trying to pack as much onto a truck as they possibly can. And there's such a shortage of workers that there's people on docks that have not been trained and driving forklifts into things. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a crapshoot almost daily to see, okay, is this one going to arrive all right? Is that one going to arrive all right? And what's going to happen? Um, you know, for, for us, it's if something arrives damaged to you, we're going to we're going to take care of that. Um, but if it arrives to you and you just decided you didn't like it and you want to send it back, then that's going to be on you. Yeah. So uh, this is a good segue to my next question. I usually ask, uh, how do you decide FBA or FBM? And the answer is 99.99% is uh, FBA without a doubt. And I support that model mainly because it's less work. Yes. It's a model that will scale. However, in your case, that's a really delicate decision. So walk us through your approach to deciding what are the things that, what numbers are you looking at? What are the considerations that, that you're taking into account in order to decide this item is going to go FBA, this one is going to be FBA? Well, to me, it really depends on what's the product. So, for instance, um, plush toys, all of my plush toys um, were not a problem. When I was in nutraceuticals, none of that product was a problem. When we're talking about furniture, um, we have, for instance, a, a, a three-person sofa is going to come to you, and it's going to come in nine boxes. And so, the, the, the trouble comes in that everything that we sell comes in 24 different colors. And so it's not uncommon, even from our own warehouse, for you to get, maybe you got a blue seat and somehow you ended up with red legs. Um, Just because there's so many things to pick, you just end up with what you get. Um, And so for, for us, that's really the deciding factor. Is it something that Amazon is going to be able to execute on with excellence? Um, because ultimately, Amazon's going to blame you, the seller, and the customer's going to blame you, the seller. Amazon's going to be the knight in shining armor with their A to Z claim process, and it's going to ensure that, that they make their customer whole. So the nature of the product, uh, how about, so it doesn't matter how, well, I guess this comes down to the size of the product, the dimensions. Yes, it, it is, and that's another great point. You know. Um, UPS, um, as one of the big carriers, they've done so many changes in terms of what their box sizes are going to be allowable to be that um, we, we analyze our products every year to decide, is that small package eligible or isn't it? And um, some of our best-selling items were small package eligible until about seven months ago when they changed the box sizes. And now all of a sudden, that box gets a $150 surcharge because now it's oversized. Wow. So, um, okay. That, that changes things, of course, because now we're talking about the, the revenue model. Right. By the time you factor that in, and considering that Amazon, your average Amazon shopper is always looking for a competitive price. Yes. 
So, yes. uh, now the nice part is, is that we're brand protected and um, we're very cautious about who we allow to sell online retail with the brand. So we don't have really any competition on Amazon for the product, um, but there are a lot of knockoff products. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's what they call product hacking, right? So they look at an item and then the next thing is, and somebody else comes up with a similar one sure. uh, because they're looking at the numbers. So FBA, FBM is a big decision for you. So uh, in your case, so that if we were to take you as a benchmark, uh, how many items, unique items do you have in your product pool? Well, if we take color out of it, um, about 700. So if you take color out of it. So yes. So now if you add color in 24 colors times those 700. Oh my God. So yeah. So what percentage of those unique SKUs do you have as FBA? Well, with those, we would pare it completely down and we would pare it down to the point that we might say, okay, we're going to really offer this product in these six colors and that's what we're going to focus on. And so that way we kind of drive um, the popularity of the product. Um, people, you know, color is something that goes in seasons where, oh, that's in this year, it's not going to be in next year. And we rotate, we, um, you know, we discontinue a color, bring in a new color each year. Um, and so we're, the methodology behind it is analyzing the sales from the previous year to see what the contract market has been interested in. Um, because by and large, the contract market is getting their, um, their purchasing from some type of a designer or architect that's been driving the bus. And so they're kind of in the know in terms of trend and what's happening. And so we kind of follow that pathway year to year. Um, sometimes we'll get thrown a curveball, but not very often. Uh, so that really helps us to pare down in terms of that's what we're going to stock. doesn't mean that you can't have it. It just means that you're going to have a lead time. Mm -hmm. And then out of what you stock, uh, based on your performance, and what percentage ends up becoming FBA? Um, probably 25%. Okay. So, I mean, that's 25% less headache. And uh, out of that 25%, what is the percentage that end up getting these problems where you just have to eat the cost? So, we'll say before COVID, it might have been around 1%. I would say now it's probably closer to 6 so they, do you think they are real or some, you know, obviously? I think um, because it happens to us. And so um, I think that the, the LTL over the road trucking industry has had a real problem over the last year and a half. Um, it used to be that you could insure your loads and not really have to worry too much about it. But not only is things getting damaged, but they're also not approving claims either. So you're just kind of out. I see. So, I mean, you are introducing something I never thought of until now, uh, that in your revenue model. So this is for sellers who have large, large size, you know, above average size products that mm -hmm. they are using FBA for. They really need to build into their revenue model some kind of a buffer a percentage for their costs, right? Yes. So, and it can be difficult, especially with the fluctuations in freight right now. It would be yeah. a really big moving target. Yeah, and and the, and the reason for that is basically the, the drop in quality of transportation services. Yes. And we've seen those videos on you know online where you know how the UPS driver delivers, how the <laughs> FedEx driver and Amazon Prime delivers. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. Somebody did a study and they took sensors and they used UPS, FedEx and Postal Service. And they had uh, like four or five different size packages and four or five different um, sensors for um, drop velocity and shipped a bunch of product coast to coast and, and whatnot. And um, FedEx had the most, you know, instances where the sensors tripped. Um, then the post office, then UPS, um, which surprised me. I didn't think that um, the postal service would have been better than Federal Express. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have a soft, stop, a soft spot for the postal service, United States Postal Service. Oh, gosh, yes. 
because I worked very closely with when I was a seller, uh, I became the biggest customer in my district for my post office. <laughs> so the postmaster and I became very friendly. So he would come in and we would have conversations. And this is, uh, this is when in the economy was transitioning. So, of course, the postal service was behind. And in fact, uh, if, you, uh, if, if you remember those days, if you used the service they call, it's all uh, flat. Uh, oh, flat yeah. Mail. If it fits, it should. Priority, priority, yeah. priority mail. So if you, we were using priority mail, uh, not flat rate, but just priority mail. So anyway, uh, so he came in one day and I said, listen, you guys are behind the curveball. You need to do something about this as the post office, because I want you to be successful, but you really, I mean, hopefully it doesn't happen many times, but uh, if there is a problem with the package, you ought to be including insurance with it because your competition does. Mm -hmm. And he said, Nick, these are things that are above my paycheck. So I said, okay, who's the person? He said, well, it's all Washington, D.C. I said, put me in touch with the Washington, D.C. people. Not just for this, but for other things. I, I, one day I had a visit from three people. They came specifically from Washington, D.C. And I told them about different ideas. About a year and a half later, one day I get a phone call. And, they, and this lady says, I'm uh, calling to let you know that we have an event at Blah Blah Center and we are launching several things, and we are inviting select number of uh, you know, companies, mm -hmm. and we especially want you to be there because we have an announcement to make <laughs> to hear. So, so, so anybody listening, the, the, the fact that the priority mail has up to $50, I believe, insurance is included. I'm one of the guys who nagged about it, and they mm -hmm. paid attention. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that that gives me the loyalty for the post sure plus you know post 9-11 you know how it was so these yes, guys, so i always support them and fedex is my least favorite so i'm not surprised in fact happy to hear they wrecked yeah, a lot of people don't realize that those fedex ground drivers get paid a commission they're not paid a salary and so yes. you know the more packages they can deliver in a day the more money they make which is why they don't care if they throw your television over the fence yeah and fedex grounds i mean fedex ground they are contractors they don't care they don't and, uh, ups does not operate like that not that ups is any better but uh, when it comes down to billing they are all the same. They, are, they try to build their own instincts. So, uh, so tell me about, so you said 700 unique items, and then when you throw in the colors. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you monitor how these, these things are performed. Well, it, for the most part, the large shifts in inventory are from a contract market. So, um, you know, when COVID started, um, most consumers at home were buying a table and two chairs for outside table and two chairs, table and two chairs. So, you know, that was the go-to um, and probably 80% of the orders at that point in time. But then you flop that over to the contract market and you will have um, maybe a hotel that's going to order 400 tables at a time. And so it's easy to uh, maintain inventory levels because the contract market is ordering well enough in advance that even if you don't have the product, you have time to get the product in, uh, you know, because they're on a construction schedule or they're on some type of a, a move in, move out schedule. Um, and even for them, you know, the past few years, there are tons of construction delays because of inability to get labor, inability to get, um, you know, building materials, um, inability to get uh, governmental workers over to look at your inspections. So, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of a crazy place. So, you know, we monitor um, inventory levels and we actually order predominantly at least once a week replenishing. Um, if we don't have some, for instance, if, if you were to order something and we had three of the items in stock and two of the items weren't in stock, then we're going to go ahead and order all of your items because you got to wait for the other two anyway. And that way it leaves what you were, what we had in stock for you to be sellable to somebody else. 
And uh, so uh, you mentioned contractors ordering. Are you referring to ordering on Amazon? Um, not necessarily on Amazon, um, but it does happen, um, surprisingly enough. Um, you know, in terms of how we manage that inventory, I, I actually take our existing inventory and I subtract 20%. Um, and that's my inventory feed. I see. So as far as, so you, you, you know that there is a program called Amazon Business so that yes. they encourage and B2B business pricing, you can apply. And so they're trying to encourage more businesses to order through Amazon. The other thing about Amazon Business Program is Amazon is integrated with, I believe, 30 plus ERP systems in the back end. Yes. So if you are actually registering your listing for uh, Amazon Business Program for B2B pricing, it gets automatically included in yes. this. So uh, this is a good thing. So you say it's not uh, a large amount, but you do get business orders through Amazon. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cool. So, um, okay. So, how about the performance of the listings on Amazon? How do you do? You do you monitor it, and what do you do? And then what? So, because we sell into a variety of different marketplaces, you know, with we have brick and mortar retail, we have um, an online marketplace where other online retailers sell our product. We have the consumers we sell to, residential interior designers we sell to. And then we sell to the contract market, restaurants, hotels, universities, parks, public spaces. So what we don't do is undercut our online retail partners. And so we won't list on Amazon for less than map price that we make them list for. So it's all an even playing field. So you, you have a map policy that yes. you administer. So do you, and you said you, you do the, the distribution, you have resellers, but how about on Amazon? Do you get resellers on Amazon? No, we don't allow that. You don't allow. So in your agreement with the distributors, resellers, you have a condition that says only you can sell on Amazon. Right. And we're very selective in who we would use as a in, in an online marketplace. Okay. So as far as how the listing is performing in terms of orders, you know, your... Um, number of orders that it's getting versus number of uh, people looking at it. Do you monitor that? We do. We do. Um, it's our conversion rate is very high. Um, and it's very high because um, they're looking for the brand and we're the only one that has it. And so, you know, they don't have a choice of other marketplaces within Amazon to go get it. Um, so if, if that's what they're looking for, that's what they're going to get. And give us some examples of why, because you mentioned the keyword that I'm always looking for, and that's the conversion rate. <laughs> so uh, tell us why com conversion rate is important. It's important um, because if you're if if you're not getting the conversions to sales, then you might not be one. You might not be doing a very good job at your listings. Two, um, if you're um, not paying attention to pricing, then you're not going to end up in the buy box. And then you can't end up having sales. You know, who knows how far down the page you're going to be, or you're not going to get a, a buy now button. So um, it's, it's really important to monitor your performance by SKU on Amazon, because once you start going South, it's a snowball downhill and you end up really South. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, the, it's part of the algorithm, right? So uh, so how do you monitor it? Uh, because as far as I know, the conversion rate has always been a, there's a report that you need to download and look at. Is that what you use? Or That's what we use. Yeah, we do. And so I think um, we have it lucky um, because um, we're not a well-known brand in the States, you know, huge brand in Europe. And so um, when people go looking for it, they know exactly what they're looking for and why. And yeah. so, you know, it's almost as if, you know, the buyer is pre-qualified, we'll say. Cool. So uh, tell us a little bit about your team. What does it take to be successful? And uh, what are the roles in your team? I'm obviously more interested in the Amazon operation. Mm -hmm. So uh, and the other aspect of it is what do you outsource and what do you do in-house? Mm -hmm. 
So um, I would say over the last two years, the most important thing that you need on your team is a sense of humor. Um, you know, that's really what has gotten people through a lot of stuff. Um, and so in terms of team, you know, we have um, um, at Origin, there's, of course, the manufacturing part of it. Um, then we have supply chain people that get it here, um, have warehouse people that put it on the shelves. Um, we have um, team of salespeople that um, go out and sell product. And then we have um, one person that's dedicated specifically to the Amazon account that handles ensuring that inventory is right, that the listings are right, that um, communication is going timely to either the customer or to Amazon itself, that shipments are going out the way they're supposed to and timely. Um, and, um, you know, we um, then throw other resources at it as we need. Um, Amazon packages actually take priority over anything else in the building um, just because of the strict policies that are there. Um, and so um, our business model is that um, you might place an order and we're going to tell you, okay, it's going to ship this date um, and it's always a Friday. And so what that means is your product is going to ship sometime that week. Well, of course, you know, that doesn't work with Amazon. So, um, you know, their products, they order most everything ships same day. Yeah. So how about uh, your advertising, your PPC and things like that? Do you manage that in-house or outsource? Um, we manage it in-house um, and we don't do a lot of it just because there's nobody else that can really sell our product except for people with the knockoffs. And we really, um, we monitor that quite heavily to ensure that they're not using the brand name in their advertising. And uh, how do you monitor it? Um, we have some web crawlers that go out and, and look at how um, their product pages are built, um, what they're saying in their product pages. Um, you know, it, we, can, we can take care of something where they're mentioning the brand, um, but if they're not mentioning the brand and it's just the product looks the same, there's nothing really we can do about that unless they're infringing on a patent. Yeah. So there is two types of monitoring, right? So one is on your listing where they are, they, be, they list themselves as a reseller. Mm -hmm. So that's an easy catch and that's the buy box. Yep. And so if your buy box rate drops, then immediately that, that's what it means. Of course, somebody reselling is not the only reason why you would lose the buy box. No, it's not. But right. uh, it's, it's, it's at least a good reason. Mm -hmm. The other one is, is really somebody is hacking. And, you know, they, they just create an alternative. Unfortunately, there is not too much you can do unless yeah, they use. So what I, I had another guest and, uh, and he mentioned one way they do it is people do a, a fairly good job copying a product and then adding some other pieces and then they sell it as an alternative, but they use pictures and descriptions from yours. <laughs> Yes. So yeah. that, that uh, on its own constitutes copyright infringement. Yes. So that's, that's another way that. It is. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I think you kind of have to, um, you kind of have to really sometimes take it with a grain of salt because you could end up spending all of your time just looking for the bad guys and spending no time selling. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. So you want to be careful. So, um, okay. So when you started in Fairmont, the uh, company was already on Amazon or you got that stuff? No, um, we started after I got there. So that's a very good uh, answer because I'm going to ask you, what was the decision-making process to be on Amazon? Why? Well, it was, it was a little, it was almost a difficult thing to get done. Because um, in the very beginning, of course, Amazon was a place where you went to get a deal. eBay was a place where you went to get a deal. And um, with, with the brand recognition in Europe, it wasn't something that we wanted to associate with the product where people thought that we were diminishing the value of the brand by selling on Amazon. And so it took a lot of um, you know, convincing and um, you know, there's a lot of other high-end brands that now sell on Amazon. Um, only because you almost have to. Um, if you don't, then, you know, sometimes people will think maybe you're not even in business anymore if they can't find it on Amazon. Sure. Well, it's become, since they made the deal with Google where Amazon serves up the search results for product searches, if you're not on Amazon, you're not going to show up in Google. No. 
So you have to be there. So, uh, so you basically recognize the fact that it's time for a change in how we do business because Amazon will absolutely change the way you're running the business. Right? Well, and I think too, um, it's sad that COVID happened, but I think COVID was a dose of reality for a lot of people. You know, the, the brick and mortar malls have been dying for quite some time. And um, I think that this really made people realize where their shortcomings were in terms of how they were going to react to the market trends and what's changing and how um, they have to really educate themselves on how to sell online. A lot of people think that you just put a website up and you throw some pictures up and, you know, you know, field of dreams, you build it and they will come. And that's not how it works. So, um, one, my, one of my favorite questions is if you could wish for one thing, uh, for Amazon to change in their policies, dealing with sellers, third-party sellers, what do you think that would be? I think it would be finding a way to be more judicious and more um, and level the playing field more in terms of A to Z claims um, and um, and how that they're at this point with their size. They have to look at the third-party sellers as the customer that they are as well. Yeah. That mindset does not exist. No, it doesn't. Amazon. The sellers are the, the third-grade citizens. Yes. They are guilty for anything they are accused of before they could say a word, right? So yes. well, I think that culture is, is a bad culture. I think. It is. Well, it's because it's, it's training the customers that they can get by with whatever they want. Yeah. Well, you know, there are some facts yeah. that we all know. 60% of Amazon sales come from third-party sellers, so that gives them the top-line revenue. So imagine how the uh, Wall Street would react if Amazon lost 60% of their top-line. Right. Uh, it would be a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is Amazon gets most of their market intelligence about what products they should create from third-party sellers. Yes. So, I mean, it, they're getting it for free with all the numbers. So uh, it's totally justified, but it's a cultural change. I don't know if they will ever, uh, ever go that route. So, Scott, I want to ask you something about, uh, you know, what everybody goes through. So, as you know, you've been doing this long enough. You know Amazon. It, Amazon really pushes you around and it puts you in a in a bad place. So, the Share with us some of the the, the moments, uh, one or two that sticks in your mind that really got you down. And as a human being, as, a, as someone in leadership role, now the whole world is on your shoulders. Uh, tell us what that was and what that was like, how it felt, and how you actually got out of it. So, you know, it, it it's a return. So, um you know, we sell lighting, so um, LED um, lanterns, outdoor lanterns, and someone ordered uh, six of them, and they're not inexpensive. Um, they were delivered. They were delivered on time. Um, person had them for, I'm going to guess, maybe 25 days, 26 days, and um, put in their request to return them. We require them to pay their shipping back. We got them and they had been used more than one time. And um, Amazon did not want to hear it. They didn't care how many pictures we sent. They didn't care how much we wrote. We, they didn't care how much communication we had with, the, with their customer. Um, their customer was going to get their money back. That was just the way it was going to be. And I was a dog with a bone. And so you know, I'm trying to go higher and trying to go higher. And then, you know, you hit a wall because you can't go any higher. You know, it's a matter of, all right, I'm going to keep calling and calling and calling. Eventually I'm going to get somebody on the phone that has a brain and is going to at least take some sort of pity on us. Um, And it just never happened. And so to me, that really turned me off in terms of customer relations with Amazon customers, thinking that everybody that wanted to return something was returning it just because they wanted their money back. Um, wasn't because they didn't like the product. wasn't 
because they didn't use the product. It was just because it was an easy way to use something and send it back. You know, it's kind of like, I guess, the, the old thing where, you know, the women will wear the dress to the Academy Awards and the tag would be stuck up the sleeve so they could take it back, you know, on Monday. So, uh, so how did you deal with that? Are you still in that mindset or have you transitioned? Uh, I'm not necessarily in that mindset any longer. Um, I think as COVID has drug on, I've softened or I've just become desensitized. I'm not quite sure which, um, uh, you know, and really trying to have a lot more grace with people. Um, you know, people can only do what they can do. And, um, you know, certainly we've all ordered something and it came in, you know, the picture online was one color and then we got it in person and, you know, our monitor made it look a different way. And, you know, it's not really what we anticipated. You know, I get it. I, I truly get it. It's just don't use the product and then try to send it back. That's the ones that really aggravate me. So it sounds to me like um, you have, uh, you were really going after it. So you were determined. So where does that determination come from? How did you develop that? Is it, um, you're, you must be growing up. You know, we all get what we get. Growing <laughs> up. So, so <laughs> I think, um, you know, my whole life has been one of those things where, um, you know, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And, um, you know, even with just dealing with people and treating people and talking to people and, you know, the whole idea that um, you should um, do or get something that you shouldn't do or get, um, and then you do it with a sense of impunity, um, that's where I get really angry. You know, it's, um, you know, went to an art festival and some, you know, teenager threw their uh, can on the ground. And I'm like, oh, that's not a trash can. You can pick that up. You know, um, you know, people are always like, you're going to get yourself killed. I'm like, no, you know, I consider these public service announcements. They don't realize what they're doing. Where did that come from? How did you develop this? this? I, 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 you know, probably it came from dealing with horses because um, they're big animals and you want to correct the negative behavior as quickly as possible. Um, otherwise, it's something where they just believe they can get by with it and they don't know any better. Um, and so I think it, it's probably carried over from that where you want to nip in the butt, the, the, the negative consequences of behavior right from the beginning. I see. So this reminds me of what somebody told me. Um, the, she, she was pregnant and didn't know anything about, you know, like most people pregnant for the first time, they don't know. And they, she asked, uh, what, how do I learn what to do? They said, get a dog training book. Yeah. <laughs> so it's and it's true. It's it's yeah. exactly how it is. That's how you how you uh, bring up a child. So okay, I was kind of uh, looking for a, a little bit more controversial, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, well, growing so, up, my father did this to so me. There's, I guess, there's two sides to this. You know, the other side that I have is that um, I'm extremely overprotective of marginalized people. And so, you know, in my warehouses, it's always been um, a lot of Hispanic people or um, people of color. And um, I'm always very cognizant of how they get treated and what opportunities are available for them and how it is that I can help them move forward in life, even if it's not with me, getting them prepared to go somewhere to do something, um, you know, showing them that, that they have ability and they have worth and they have um, a whole world ahead of them. And, you know, this is how you can take control of it. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the other side of the coin where, um, yeah. Don't, somebody don't. is behaving badly, they are infringing on somebody else. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. And where does that come from? Um, I guess I've just always thought that just people need to treat people well. Yeah. You know, and I don't know where that all went wonky, but it's really gone wonky. Yeah. 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 It's true. Maybe you got treated badly when you were little. Maybe, you know, it got stuck in you. I mean, the reason I'm asking you these questions is because this goes straight to your leadership. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are the traits of a leader, especially in this 
world and we look at the situation, you know, Amazon exploits, right? Or people exploit the things that Amazon offers and yes. you don't do well. So in your case, that doesn't, you know, it just gets you wound up even more. Uh, but at the end of the day, that shows up. And mm -hmm. so um, that's very true. I think in my leadership style, it's um, I come from a place of you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. Um, um, I'm behind you. Um, my whole thing is that um, all of the successes that happen belong to my team. All of the negative things that happen, that belongs to me. Yeah, that actually is a line from a book called Good to Great. Yes. So, yeah. uh, so that is a good place to end. So uh, give us uh, how people can reach you and uh, tell us also where you are based and and your contact information. We will put on the website sure. uh, as well as uh, YouTube. People can reach you, but it's a good thing to mention it here. Yeah, so um, I'm based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, you know, people can find me on LinkedIn at my name, Scott Welker Reyes. Um, I have a website, Scott Welker Reyes as well. Um, uh, that, those are probably the two easiest places to find me. All right, great. Thank you, Scott. This was Thank very you. valuable. And uh, I enjoyed talking to you and learning about your compassion as well. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Thanks, Dick. Right. Thank you. And uh -huh. that brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends. <laughs>